Welcome to What's Next, the podcast that delves into the exhilarating world of nonlinear careers and the art of successful pivots. Join your host, Tamira Lechner, as she explores the diverse pathways of entrepreneurial spirits who thrive while working and playing across multiple disciplines. Whether you're firmly established in your career, contemplating a change, or simply seeking inspiration, these conversations with fascinating people will ignite your curiosity and inform your own journey. Tune in to discover how mindset and action plus your own secret sauce can lead to extraordinary personal and professional growth, no matter where life takes you. Welcome to What's Next, a podcast that delves into the exhilarating world of nonlinear careers and the art of a successful pivot. I'm your host, Tamara Lechner, and I'm here for the third week with my guest, Eric Fraser. Welcome back, Eric. Thanks, Tamara. Good to be here. Well, I'm excited to hear what's happened. When we last spoke, you had Dr. Lisa Palmer coming back from her vacation, and you had set two clear goals that you wanted to kind of jump right into. The first one being making sure you both had a clear understanding of what you were doing and how you were doing it together. And the second, setting some values for your teamwork, your culture of work. So I want to hear what what you've done. What's happened since we last spoke? Yeah, so we're running a little bit behind on those two things. Um, We have done some work on them, but um, the original plan was to have them done by this week, but we just had to push it um, to a little bit later this week. Um, So I don't have a final output to report, um, but we... We do have the beginnings of that. I'll, I'll report back when we're finished. And, um, you know, essentially the, the challenge that Lisa has and that we both have now, um, is that she gets a wide, wide variety of requests for help from lots of different people. And it's just humanly impossible for her to get to them all. So we have to decide, um, you know, how to filter that, um, which of the hundred, requests that come in, you know, maybe she can realistically attend to 20 of them. So how do we decide which 80 to say no to? So some of that's going to be economics, but some of it should be driven and filtered based on purpose and values. Um, so we, we think we have a lane that we uh, belong in and that we would sort of natively exist in, which is the world of sales and marketing use cases. Um, but we, we want to get super specific about what type of work we want to do and what's the effect that we want to have uh, on our clients' uh, experiences and the way that they um, work in the world. I love all of what you said, and I actually had wondered how you were going to show up having met those clear goals because it we're recording this on a Wednesday and that's a very short way into a, a week together um, with you and Lisa. What I'm interested to know, because everything you said really resonates. Number one for our audience members listening, notice how many people want this type of service because if Eric and Lisa can't manage to handle all 100, there's a clear market of, of, work for somebody else. And I love how much clarity you have on defining your lane. And I think extending that out into the, who are we going to help just makes 
absolute sense, right? I don't want to help sales and marketing for something that is a negative impact on the world. But how do we decide? Have you two considered an algorithm to help you decide? No, we haven't. Um, I think this should be a very, very human thing. Um, like when you're picking values to run a company by, um, I'm not sure that an AI algorithm is going to give you a very good answer because it has to touch your soul as an operator of the company. An AI doesn't have a soul and it doesn't know what a soul is. I think that's something we need to double click on because when we're hearing that AI sorts well and AI can distill things down well, the thing I'm hearing is it can do that, but our human guts and hearts are not something that we're going to be able to replicate through AI, certainly not in the next five or seven years, or if at all, what do you think? Is it at an all? Are we ever going to get there? That's a pretty interesting philosophical question. So my own, you know, thin layer of study in philosophy leads me to believe the answer is no, we will not get there. Um, even with quantum computing, I'm pretty sure we won't get there because quantum computing, it looks to me right now, we're just going to use quantum states to basically calculate numbers faster. Um, and this transcends numbers. So sense of morality, for example, is that a numbers thing? I don't think it is. I think there are just some things that transcend numbers, and AI is all about numbers. Sometimes it can create the illusion that it is not about numbers, but it is. It's about numbers. It's just doing math. Yes. So maybe this is a good time to dive into some of those AI terms some of the common language a little bit more because i was i was listening to a podcast um and they were talking about open versus open source and i don't know if you have a clear understanding of the difference but when i listened to their talking about how these two things were different i just thought of so many unique little misunderstandings could happen when a sales or marketing team are (laughs) thinking they're getting one, but are getting the other. So can you help me decipher this language a little bit? So if you were listening to a podcast last week and someone was talking about open versus open source, they were probably talking about the French startup Mistral that released um, their latest sort of fast, lightweight, open uh, product. And so it is open because it showed everyone what the basic metadata and the weights of the model were. And I want to focus in on weights because that's a really key thing here. The weights of a large language model control how it calculates the probabilities of which word is going to be the next best word to put in the sentence. So they're incredibly important. And exposing them and letting people play with them lets people play with the basic mathematics of how the model works. So that is open. Most, I mean, you know, ChatGPT doesn't let you do that. Their their weights are very, you know, do not touch, like don't even look at them. We're not even going to let you see them. They're closed. So they're open in that way. But in the software world, if you say open source, 
what you usually mean is I will show you the actual source code. So in this case, I'm going to assume that Mistral is written in Python because all the AI products are written in Python now, it seems. So can you actually look at the Python source code of, of the Mistral products? No, you can't. That would be open source. Um, so I assume that's what they meant in that podcast. You are exactly right. I was listening to Arthur Munch, who is the co-founder of Mistral, and, and trying to really clarify that for an audience that could misunderstand and think that one was the other, and, and specifically around training a large language model that would be owned inside of an organization. Mm. but open. And I think that was confusing to many listeners. Uh, And so I thought for our listeners to understand that you could have something where you have trained out the bias or made every effort possible to train out the bias, but Mm. still have that be open without it being open source. Am I? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, so when you can play, when you can see and play with the weights of a large language model, you can very much and directly influence its bias or its leanings. Um, you don't need to be fiddling around with the Python source code to do that. The weights will do it for you. So you don't need to touch the Python source code. Um, I'm trying to think of a non-software analogy for this. It's like um, open in this case would mean I'm going to tell you about this animal and I'm going to give you detailed anatomy diagrams of everything about this this uh, animal's body. So it's uh, skeletal structure, digestive system, cardiovascular system, assuming it's, you know, a mammal. Um, so that would be open. Uh, open source might be, oh, by the way, here is its DNA mapping. So if you want to turn it from a horse into a hippopotamus and you have, you know, a gene editor, go right ahead. So that would be open source and that is not necessary in for, for the, what Mistral is trying to do for the world. You don't need that. You don't need to fiddle with their Python code. Just having access to the weights is plenty. I think this is where someone like me who wants to use AI and partner with AI to do more in a more accurate way, recognizing I have to check its work, could easily be confused by those little tiny things in terminology. And having a very clear understanding is going to be so important to a team who's making a choice about how to integrate this into their tech stack, how to explain it to the users who could easily confuse open with open source, could easily confuse so many of these terms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to make your own large language model, you probably want to code it yourself, meaning you have to write your own source code, your own Python source code. So, for example, um, Elon Musk's company X, which used to be called Twitter, right, they made their own large language model called Grok. So what I'm going to assume is that a bunch of software developers wrote the Python source code for that model. Although, by the way, they're now being accused of copying OpenAI. Who knows? We don't really know. Um, but that's what it means to make your own large language model is to code it from 
scratch. Um, if you want to make your own chatbot or GPT, you don't have to make the whole large language model. You can take someone else's large language model, like an open one, like Mistral's one that they just released, and you can make your own chatbot based on that language model. And if you're very clever and you really know what you're doing, you can fiddle with the weights of the model. So that's what I want to get clarity on, because what I'm seeing are a ton of businesses jump in and find a YouTube video that tells them how to make their own chatbot. And my concern slash curiosity is that they don't understand what they're making, that they are following those logical steps, which I believe I could, I've actually gone out of my way to not do this because I don't believe I have enough understanding yet of what could go wrong as well as what could go right. I know I could make one and have it as I know you did with culture partners, right? You took a lot of their historic questions and data and were able to make a brilliant bot, but you also understand the weighting. Yeah. And I didn't actually, yeah. Avoid that mistake of doing the follow the steps on YouTube. Now I have a bot, but I don't have any understanding of how my bot is responding. Yeah. So the bots I made were just purely using chat GPT-4's, you know, GPT creator. That does not change any weightings. Okay. All that does is it, it feeds the model with a certain, you know, small training data set. But it so doesn't get, change the weightings of the model. If, if this question is asked, this is my response. That type of simplicity not, a little more than that not quite as like if then but more like hey read these hundred pages about <clears throat> you know culture partners methodology and then when i ask you a question about how culture partners does things you need to reply intelligently based on the fact that you read those hundred pages okay more like that it's not like if this then that um that that's not playing with the weights of the model playing with the weights yes. of the model is like surgery so if you are not a surgeon do not do it um, and people who are playing with weights of models now are kind of like the first surgeons, right? So they're opening up, yeah. you know, live people looking at anatomy going, oh, that's interesting. I didn't think that was going to be there. And, you know, snipping away. And what happens if we do this? And, oh, that looks like the sick thing there. Let's cut that out. I hope he survives. And then they stitch them back up. And, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, in response to that, in response to that problem, the AI industry is also making better and better tools so today for example there was a tool set that got released that purports to make this sort of surgery easier um i don't know if it actually does that i put myself on a wait list i waited on the wait list for 60 minutes i literally just got access to the tool just before this podcast so i'll let you know but that is their promise it's like we know you're not a, a trained surgeon, but you want to do some surgery. You want to start playing with model weights in, you know, Llama or, you know, Mistral. So here's a tool set that will let you do it and a bunch of other really cool things. It's interesting because what so many things came up when you were speaking, but the last one was the danger of somebody who doesn't have the background knowledge being able to almost be a surgeon. And I'm, I'm thinking this is not an AI example, but I have some basic medical knowledge. And I know a lot about a certain classification of drugs because a lot of people in my family are on those drugs. Right. And I actually was able to call 
a doctor and recommend that a family member be switched. And the doctor said, actually, this is correct. However, if someone is using a model that's been built that way, and they assume, oh, we've got one really great answer. So this must be a wonderful model. I don't know anything about all the other classes of drugs and all the other, other diseases. I think where I'm going to be really curious as people adopt this is that belief that we see that something that comes from a computer is right. And (laughs) people having to understand that this is no longer the case, us really having to check our work. But but, uh, do you see this as being a big problem? Because the more I hear about what is going to happen with these LLMs and AI, AIG, the more I have concern that we're going to have a really hard time filtering truth from mistruth, fact from not a fact at all. Yeah, it'll be a big problem at first, but then it'll get smaller really fast because people will um, realize where the problems are and and attack them. Um, So simple example. so Grok, right, the the AI that yes. was built by X, um, it was caught uh, recently saying, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do that for you because it's against open AI's policy, right? So it exposed the fact that it thought for a second that it was ChatGPT. Now, that got noticed uh, by yeah, yeah. one person who spread it around. And so now the people at X are like, oh, we better go fix that. So that's a simple, simple illustration of, you know, problems get spotted in this world really fast because there's so much scrutiny on everything. Um, Negativity bias is strong in us humans. Yeah. And, you know, it's new and it's, you know, we intuitively understand how powerful it is. So when it's new and it's powerful, people are going to have their eyes on it and they're going to be scrutinizing it. So right now um, it is basically the industry scrutinizing itself in a way. Yes. I don't know that many governments who are um, scrutinizing it to the extent that the industry scrutinizes itself. But there is, by the way, one of the big things that happened last week was that um, the EU brought out a framework for regulating AI. Um, and there's a blog about that on the drlisa.ai blog. So if people are more interested in, you know, what does it mean, go read it. It's not just going to impact what happens um, to European companies. It's going to impact all companies. Um, But what will happen is, yes, AI will get some things wrong in a way that your Excel spreadsheet won't. So what will happen is what you said, right? People will say, well, I always trust my Excel spreadsheet to add up numbers correctly, so I can trust the AI in exactly the same way, right? Wrong, wrong. And so what will happen is AI will make mistakes. Some of those mistakes will be very public and very embarrassing. And people, lots of smart people will say, okay, we must work out why that happened and fix it. So there will be this feedback loop, but there will be mistakes made. Hopefully, these mistakes are more like Grok thinking that it's ChatGPT, pretty harmless, a bit embarrassing, but no one died. Um, you know, the, the AI that's being used to figure out treatment paths in hospitals, for example, that's life and death stuff. So that, is um it's more important to get that right but that's also luckily older like the ai that's in place doing that stuff or even deciding whether you should get a credit card or a loan that's older too 
Yeah. And it's been tested for years and years and years. It's still, it's not perfect, but it's just more accurate than what we're seeing from large language models. So that, number one, I still love the name Grok. Every time either one of us says Grok, I'm like, what a great name. Uh, I'm interested in what you were talking about with the EU recommendations. And just as a question, and we can look at at the blog to dive deeply, but are there differences between what happened with Biden's policy recommendations? How how I guess, was there anything outstanding that was new? Yeah, there are differences. This one, I think, is more specific and more restrictive, meaning the Europeans became more more specific and more restrictive, um, basically because they spent longer thinking about it. Um, And so if the Americans decide to bring their version, it's probably going to be, again, more restrictive and, and more specific. Restrictive is not a bad thing in this case because what we're talking about is not restricting research we're restricting certain types of negative behavior and outcomes so for example one of the restrictions that's disallowed in europe right now is you cannot you're not allowed to use ai to exploit someone's disability right that's just yeah an example of of a restriction so i'm not saying you know only you are allowed to do research and only you are allowed to do research that's not the type of restriction we're talking about I've heard of this compared to the restrictions that were put on laser technology when lasers were first invented and countries all came together and agreed, we will not use these to blind one another in a war situation. Exactly, yeah. And so I think, especially Americans don't like restrictions. They they like freedom. Uh, it's it's written into their DNA on some level, I think. Um, yeah. I can say that being married to an American and being the parent of a couple of Americans. However, I do see when, when we look to Europe, uh, their level of caution hopefully will inform ours. And I think as we look to groups like the group that decided, okay, we're going to come together and not use lasers in war, we're going to have to do that for this technology. We're going to have to figure out a model on a global basis rather than a country by country basis to decide what it can and cannot do in stages, mm. which is a pretty massive undertaking. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the the one about not exploiting someone's disability seems super obvious, right? So hardly anyone's yeah. going to say, I disagree, you should be able to do that. But here's one that's a little more, you know, gray area. So another thing that it restricts is you're not allowed to scrape the internet for facial images and build mm-hmm. Uh, a facial recognition database. Now, I can imagine some companies saying, why the heck not? I mean, it's public information. If people are going to stick images of their faces on the internet, why can't I scrape them all up and build my own database of who's who? Now, I remember, you know, years ago in Silicon Valley, I was already walking into tech headquarters, being photographed, and then being stored in that company's database as Eric Fraser. So next time I turned up at that office they're like oh we know who you are we, we photographed you three months ago and you put all your information into this terminal so but that's just that company right they didn't share it with everyone in silicon valley they just said well now you're just known to us so um 
So this is different, right? This is just scraping the entire internet saying, all right, well, there's photos of pretty much everyone on the internet. So let's just build a worldwide database. And so now whenever anyone is in front of a camera, we can tell who they are. Apparently that's not allowed, right? Like this EU regulation says, no, you, you're just not allowed to do that unless you've got extra special, you know, um, permission. Like yep. you're probably going to have to be like a, a security arm of a government or something. And I heard, actually I was reading Mustafa Suleiman's book and he was saying that he thinks that that's happening in China, whether or not the oh, restrictions is. are off. Yeah. That, yeah. 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 China does that already. I mean, they've been doing that for years. So, you know, two years ago in China, if you walked in front of a, uh, a traffic camera, I mean, it knows who you are. So that's that's old in China now. That's not even new. That's been going on for a while. Wow. Yeah. And so how do we get a China and a US and a EU and a UK? I, I know you don't have the answer to this, but yeah. how do we get everybody to come together? I think that's one of the things that as you and and Lisa are deciding who are we going to work with? Who those are the questions, right? If, if we start right. to think of what what's going to be considered in in who our clients are or who they are not, will be the what is it for? Yeah, I mean that's a geopolitics problem more than a technical one. Um, it so, is yeah, I I think when know. you layer the two, it, yeah. it it makes it even more interesting, and and I think when we look to the value systems of different countries. And so, for example, if you look in, in parts of the Middle East where women are still very hidden, would a camera be able to identify women from just their eyes? Um, and so there, there's just so many layers of this. And then the, I'm yeah. getting us way off topic, but this kind of thing intrigues my crazy brain. Uh, I would love to go back to some other exciting things that you've seen because I know you're spending so much time each week researching and trialing the new innovations. Um, what excited you since we last spoke? Well, it sounds strange to be excited by a regulatory framework, but that is exciting. It should be exciting because it's a statement of direction by a major set of governments about um, how they are going to guardrail the behavior of AI. Um, and so that can help direct investments that can help direct research. Um, it can help guide discussions of morality, ethics, safety, security. Uh, so I think that's, that's a really big event in the world of AI. Um, I think that the other really exciting thing that happened for AI people is that this French startup, which we just mentioned, um, now, it's not like a plucky little startup with $100 in the bank. I mean, it's a very well-funded startup, but it is a startup nonetheless. Um, and they uh, released their latest AI model. It's not their first. It's it's a, one of a series of models that they've been releasing, but it made a big splash because they didn't use a, a product video like Google did. Um, you know, they didn't come out on stage in a conference saying, guess what, everyone? We've just done this. All they did was that they just dropped it on BitTorrent. So no announcement, no PR, nothing. Just dropped it on BitTorrent. There it is, free. So, of course, the tech community noticed that. They're like, what's this? 
And then when they realize what it is, they're like, oh, holy, you know, smokes, this is an entire AI model and it works pretty well and it's fast and it's free and it's small, meaning it's light. Um, you know, the, what I mean by small and light is the parameter count is 7 billion parameters. Um, ChatGPT has, I don't know, like 1.7 trillion or something. So, um, and does so, that, Eric, sorry, does that go to storage? So yeah, our storage, being able to storage. put it on a laptop someday, not yet, right. but it's getting smaller. Storage and memory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the size of the memory, like the RAM in your laptop, for example, yes. people are running this model on powerful laptops. Um, there's a guy that has run it on his phone. Um, I mean, he must have a pretty beefy phone. Um, but yeah, you can put this on laptops. I mean, if you want to fiddle around with it as a person, go ahead and do that. If you want to use it for business, obviously do not put it on a laptop. Um, you know, buy some proper infrastructure and run it on that infrastructure. But the, the point is that this small light model proved to be quite good. So instead of just being the, the poor person's version, of chat gpt it was a worthy competitor to chat gpt 3.5 which is a huge model that's so, what i had heard about it which is actually mind-boggling if yeah it, it was kind of like if a go-kart company ended you know entered a formula one race and placed fourth yeah you know everyone would be like whoa how did you do that you know you so how does that play out for use so yes now we have this smaller model that is publicly available yeah how might that benefit a company well there's a particular element of the model which is its use of what's called mixture of experts and so just in layman's terms what it means for a company that might want to use it is it makes it easier to specialize a model in a particular arena of knowledge and it makes it easier to train that model without having an army of software engineers so let's say you wanted to make a uh, a chatbot that was really good at diagnosing whether someone has COVID or whether they just have a cold. And you just make that chatbot available. I don't know, maybe you're a health insurance company and it's part of being a member or something of the, the health insurance group. So you could make that chatbot available. You could use natural language saying, okay, I do have a sore throat. You know, it could say, what's your pain level? Oh, six out of 10. Okay. Do you have this symptom? Do you have that symptom? How long have you felt that? Right. And you could make a bot that is very specialized with all the natural language capabilities that these LLMs have, but specialized in just telling you whether you have COVID or just a cold. And this style of small light model makes it easier for companies that are not in the software industry, don't have a bunch of software engineers, are not interested in signing a contract with some development house to, you know, build like a very complicated thing. It just makes it easier and cheaper to build that type of thing. That was very clear. I heard that someone had created something like this where you could take a picture and upload a picture of a mole and it would tell you with 92% accuracy if that mole should be checked out by a professional for potentially being cancerous. And and so I think those are the types of use cases where I don't need to understand to encode Python to understand yeah. the impact this might have on the medical system. 
And it is that specificity, right? We're not asking it to do all of the things. We've said very specifically, you're just looking at moles. Yeah, yeah. Now, the one caveat I'll say to that is I don't know how well it does with image recognition. Um, I believe it does really well with text things, which is why I was, the, the example I thought of was, you know, you could basically converse with people in natural language about their symptoms, you know, yep. headache, sore throat, you know, tiredness. Is that COVID or not? Yeah. That sort of thing. Um, <laughs> image recognition is its own, you know, thing. Um, and some models are really good at it and some models are not so good. Yeah, so that is clear. And of course, images would be harder than yeah. words. Um, yeah. And yeah, so that, that answers my, yeah. that helps me to understand. And I think I, I keep coming back to, I can use this, but I don't need to understand how it works. Right. I hope to have more understanding than my mom who can use it to dial in text, but doesn't know how to get a new app and doesn't know how to update the, yeah. and so I think, as listeners are thinking about where do I fit in here, listeners who are in the tech world and who understand where to go and look, what was the site you said? Bit. Oh, BitTorrent. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't know that and yeah. probably will never go there. But the technology yeah. people already know that and are already yeah. there. And so this just really informs us as people in business of what level of knowledge do I need to upskill and where do I want to go with that? Um, yeah, yeah. There's there's one big directional error that's clear to everyone is that the industry is trying to make it easier and more accessible to build models and train models and refine models. So literally every week something happens that makes it easier. This is a lot like what happened with the internet. So at hmm. first, if you wanted to build a web page, you had to understand HTML and JavaScript and you know all the actual you know technical bits and pieces um and now uh you know you can you don't need any of those skills to build a basic web page so in a similar way the industry is trying very hard and putting a lot of money and effort into making it easier and easier and easier every week to make it more accessible for non-technical people to build their own uh things like chatbots on top of ai models and I think that's where getting some of this common language that we're talking about, really understanding where it can go right and where it can go wrong. I, I liked our conversation last week about this is not a place to build fast and break it, that actually yeah. we need to slow down a little yeah. bit. And I know many, there, there's a real balance of, okay, we can't stop the momentum. We're not going to. but figuring out where we sit and pause and where we should be focusing our global attention that is more connected to how is this helping us as humans in the long run versus thinking about profit. And we, I think one of the things that I think about when I'm mulling this over in my mind is that we have these tech billionaires who just don't understand what it's like to be a regular human. Sure. These thoughts and making these decisions. And then we have people who are saying, stop it, slow down, none. We've got to find some middle ground. And so I'm going to be really curious how this plays out in the next months, weeks, years. 
Yeah, me too. Yeah, some of those tech billionaires are a little bit out of touch with the tech too. They're more billionaires than tech. Ah, yeah, that, of course, right? Because the skills that you needed to start your company in your basement or your garage are not the same skills that you have. Um, And I think that as you get farther and farther away from understanding what day-to-day life is like for most humans, the more difficult it is to place the guardrails that are needed for the average person and the not average person because we need to think of all the people. Yeah, I think that's one um, challenge that these uh, very, very rich leaders have probably. I'm not one of them, so I don't know this for sure. But what I would imagine is your power starts to attract sycophants. And um, it's comfortable having sycophants around you if you have a big ego because they're always telling you that you're awesome. But they don't tell you the truth. So when you have a dumb idea, it just gets done because people are afraid to say no to you. They're afraid to tell you it's a stupid idea. So suddenly you've got a 100 engineers working on a crazy idea. Um, and, and it gets released, right? Because again, no one is brave enough to say, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? Yeah. So that's a challenge they have. Um, and that does result in some pretty weird stuff making it to market. Well, let's go back to our own weird stuff and think about challenges that you're going to have in the week ahead. And in addition to kind of finishing up your clear goals from last time, before we meet next week, what do you think you and Dr. Lisa Palmer will have come together and and done? What do you hope to personally have tried? Yeah, so the the goals of making sure that we're aligned on the purpose and the values, they're, they're still there. Um, we're trying to also um, make sure that the product catalog that we have is also fully aligned to um, the purpose and the values. And that way we'll know who to say no to. So that <laughs> ratio that I mentioned before, we get 100 requests, we can only say yes to 20. So any people we have to say no to, how do you know that you're not saying no to someone that you really should have said yes to. So product catalog is one way to do that. You can just basically say, we don't sell that. Yeah. Um, but the product catalog should be driven by the, the purpose and the values of the company. Um, and I'm also, because it's really only, you know, my first few days still at working yes. with Lisa, um, we're still learning uh, you know, how we work together and so far so good. Um, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, but I've been given a lot of sort of luxurious time to explore and learn. Um, I was pretty open about the fact that I am in a student mode right now. I'm not anywhere near Lisa's, you know, level of knowledge. Um, there are things that I can help her with very concretely, but there are other things that I I'm still learning and she's just giving me a lot of time to explore my own learning paths. And she's giving me some guidance telling me, you know, some learning is going to be more helpful than others in the short term. Um, but yeah, that's, that's part of the enjoyable part of it is um, just the accumulation of knowledge. So I love that. And I, what I would love to know, in addition to the blog that you've mentioned earlier 
if our audience was going to read or listen to one thing that you think would be really beneficial for them, do you have a suggestion of something? There are so many things that I could say, and it really depends on what they're trying to mm. um, to achieve, right? But if you're relatively new and you want a super accessible way to learn about, you know, what is AI doing and should I care about this? Do I need to care about this? How much attention do I need to pay? Two people that I would recommend, um, Lisa, especially if you are a sales or marketing leader, um, Lisa's probably the person you should uh, subscribe to. And then in general, Connor Grennan, who is Dean of Students at NYU Business School. Um, he has a YouTube channel. He's active on LinkedIn. He's active on X slash Twitter. So you can find him on social media. And he has a very accessible way of explaining um you know, basic things about AI, but he'll also keep you up to date with what's going on. So when Google, you know, screw up a product release, he's there, you know, giving you insightful and entertaining commentary on that. Um, when a French startup releases something that's, you know, very impressive, um, he's there giving you insightful, entertaining commentary on that too. That's a great resource recommendation. Thank you. I absolutely follow Connor and I know with the number of newsletters out there, you could spend all day just reading the newsletters. So having great recommendations like this is super helpful. So thank you. Before we wrap up for today, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that I didn't bring up? Um, I was thinking about, you know, one of the things that you said on episode one right at the start was this through line that goes through your work, which is that you want to help people find their best ways of working to have basically the best impact on the world. Um, so any pivot that you make, that through line is going to be there constantly. I think that when you make career pivots, um, it is helpful to know what your through line is. I like that. So do you, did you ponder yours? Yeah, I did ponder mine. Um, it's going to sound a bit weird, but I like removing illusions. Um, I think we live in a world full of illusions. We love illusions. We're addicted to illusions. Um, and I like removing them. I think, Eric, that has great clarity. And I know, like my through line, I wanted to make sure that it would filter what I would do and what I wouldn't do. And I think yours does that really well also. So I think that's a great place to stop for today, leaving our audience considering what theirs might be if they're pivoting or even if they're not pivoting. Do you have one? And can you verbalize it really in a succinct and clear way so that a 10 or 12 year old could understand what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I, I think that's a beautiful way to end this episode. Thanks to everyone for tuning again tuning in again this week. I want to say that I'm having a great time. And if you're enjoying this, please share this with your friends. We love having more people out there. And in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be asking the audience to give us their questions. Because I know what I want to hear from Eric, but I would love to hear what others are curious about. So as we close this episode, I want to remind everyone to keep charting your own unique course. Stay curious, 
stay open-minded, be brave, and enjoy it. What's next is up to you. See you next time.